Well, it's my privilege this morning to open up a new sermon series that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks. Um, we're, not, we're not totally abandoning the book of 1 John. We're just sort of pressing pause on it. And so we're going to take the next few weeks as, we, as we've been talking about this My Bold Move campaign over the last number of weeks in the summertime. Uh, we, we, as a pastoral staff team, we figured it would be good, since we're talking so much about this, to actually spend some time looking at examples in the scriptures of bold moves. And when we first started talking about this, this idea, obviously, Scripture is full of examples of bold moves. Uh, God is the hero of the Bible, and, and he works through his people to accomplish his purposes. What we wanted to do was pick specific passages that, that highlight boldness that is certainly God-inspired, but, but people executed as God works through his people. Uh, so with that said, I'm certainly excited to take us to a passage that's found in what's probably my favorite book in the entire Old Testament, uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you would like one, um, you, can, you can raise your hand and uh, one of the ushers would be happy to bring a copy of God's Word to you. We, uh, we certainly believe in the power of God's Word here at Stone Ridge and want people to be uh, learning and reading the Bible um, so if you need a copy of that, you can, you can have that. If you don't have your own copy of the Bible, um, that's something for you to keep. That's a gift for you today from us. So Daniel chapter 3, if you are reading from one of these blue Bibles, it's on page 431. 431. I recognize as we start here, this is likely for many um, probably a pretty well-known story. It's a, it's a fun passage to go through. Um, but my prayer in our time together here this morning in this passage is, is that the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts in, in a fresh new way, um, that, that we will see something that we haven't seen before and that, that we will come away with a greater appreciation for just what exactly took place as we read today and maybe even just a greater conviction to be bold and to proclaim Christ. So let's start our time here, Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then we will pray together. This is the word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Seven, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we pause together here to once again declare that you are God that you are mighty to save. There is none like you in heaven or on earth. 
You were the one who made all things. You created the universe. And yet you know us. You love us. You're for us. You're not against us. You desire that we would know you, the one true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Father, I pray for those who might be here this morning who don't yet know Christ as Savior and Lord. Maybe they've heard about Jesus, they've heard his name, but aren't really sure what it means to, to know him in a personal way. Father, I pray in these moments that your word would speak in such a way that we would see our need for a Savior. Lord, for those who are here who maybe, maybe right now you seem far away. Lord, you're distant. We feel disconnected from you. Maybe that's because of things in our lives that we're holding on to that, that obscure our view of you. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word in a powerful way. Draw us near to yourself, we pray. And Lord, for those who are here, and, and even in reading through this passage, it's, it's familiar and we, we probably know it well. But Lord, I pray that you would grant us, by your spirit, you'd grant us the humility that our hearts might be softened, that we might hear in a fresh new way the things you want to impress upon our hearts. So Lord, speak through your word this morning, I pray. Lord, I plead that you would speak through me, that you would be glorified. And we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this might come as a bit of a surprise to you, um, but I am not a very confrontational person. Those of you who know me well will be like, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I'm someone who very much seeks to avoid conflict at all costs rather than dealing with an issue head-on, meeting, meeting it. If it's going to get uncomfortable, I probably don't want to deal with it. And this has certainly made for lots of learning moments for me along the way. Certainly lots of learning moments for, for Rachel and I, especially in our, our first year of marriage where I would just want to sort of give in. I would, I would concede whatever position I held, whatever perspective I had, because I would see that she was holding her point of view and usually holding it with strength. And so rather than butt heads, I would just butt out and I would just kind of give in. And that would frustrate Rachel to no end because she wanted to get to the bottom of things. She wanted to find the, the root issue and be able to, to deal with things so that if, if similar situations came up in the future, we would be able to avoid them. So I, I like to think that I've slowly learned and, and grown in this area over the years. I've learned to appreciate uh, dealing with conflict, and I certainly could still stand to grow in that area. But if you think about conflict, if you think about confrontation for a moment, think about the way that you deal with it. We all sort of deal with it in different ways, but there are some similarities, I think. Think about different confrontations you've faced in your life. Maybe it was a, a heated argument of some sort. Maybe there were threats made against you, things that, that could have been taken away from you. Maybe it was even a, a physical altercation of some sort. But, it, but it's interesting to think about how, how we respond with, with confrontation. Our, our bodies actually sort of physically react to confrontation. I, I know for me, um, usually my heart starts pounding. It starts beating a lot faster and, and even kind of getting that, that uh, adrenaline rush and, and I start shaking and trembling almost. That's often been my experience. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning certainly speaks of, of a confrontation. It's the story of three young men who, who boldly took a stand and despite being in the minority, they were, they were willing to confront the most powerful man in the world at that point in time just because of their unwavering confidence in God. The setting is 
6th century BC. The Babylonian Empire is, is currently the superpower on the world stage. The city of Babylon itself is actually at that point the largest city the world has ever seen. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he is the, the Babylonian king. He is the one who had been prophesied about. Other Old Testament books speak about him and the coming judgment of God using, uh, using the Babylonians to uh, defeat Israel. Jeremiah mentions him. Ezekiel mentions him. And so history records that Nebuchadnezzar successfully besieged Jerusalem uh, roughly 20 years before this particular passage. And he brought back with him, he brought back to the capital city a number of, of Jewish exiles. A um, number of them were, were young men, among them Daniel, the author of this passage, this chapter, this book, and the three men that we're going to hear more about here in the next, sec next section. So Nebuchadnezzar is, certainly for all intents and purposes, the most powerful man in the world. He is the king of the superpower. He is revered, he is adored by his people, even to the extent that they worship him. He is their supreme ruler. So it should not necessarily strike us out of the ordinary here that we read about this, this, this massive construction project, this monument that's going up, this, this big statue, this golden image. It's being set up on the, on the plain of Dura, which would have been just right outside the walls of the capital city of Babylon. Some biblical scholars estimate that this thing would have, would have been seen by up to, or at least 20 kilometers away. So it's, a, so it's a dominant feature on the ancient Babylonian skyline. If you think about, I'm, I'm thinking about this just because I'm coming back from a few road trips, but think about times when you've driven in the car and you approach a, a larger city. From a distance, you sort of see the skyline first, the, the bigger towers, the buildings. Well, this would, have been the sky, this would have probably been the dominant feature of the skyline in Babylon, probably the only figure of the skyline. And in our Western world today, we, we don't really think of our, our kings and queens necessarily in the same light as people in 6th century BC would have. We, we, don't, we don't think of them the same way. Our, our monarchs are mostly figureheads. Um, there are heads of state on paper, but they don't necessarily do all that much in the day-to-day -day running and governing of our nations. And that's probably why I think sometimes language is lost in Scripture when it talks about Jesus as, as the king of kings we lose a little bit of the emphasis. I think previous generations would have appreciated that title a little bit more. And today our, our government leaders, those in power, our prime ministers and, and presidents, they certainly hold an air of celebrity status, but, but we don't necessarily revere them, and we certainly don't worship them. I think it's safe to say that. They don't have monuments set up in their honor. If you think about Europe, for example, you know, Angela Merkel in Germany, or um, Emmanuel Macron, the newly elected uh, leader of France. Um, they seem to be well-liked by their people, uh, but I don't hear about any massive construction projects going on about uh, these monuments to their honor. Um, here in Canada, Justin Trudeau certainly gives off a celebrity vibe, but uh, I don't see any bill in the House of Commons being discussed about this massive altar to Trudeau being proposed. And even in the States, it's not like there are a bunch of, you know, skyscrapers, buildings across different cities in the U.S., like, you know, Trump Tower, right? Like, who, right? Okay, well, in most cases, in most cases, our Western leaders don't build monuments to themselves. Most cases. So this is the scene. The king has this, this golden image erected. 
And all the big political bigwigs are brought together from all across the empire. That's what it says in verse 3. It's almost kind of like this, like, you know, those sod-turning ceremonies when the construction project starts, or a, a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Everybody's gathered. They're all together. Well, unfortunately for the king, for Nebuchadnezzar, not everything's going to go so smoothly. We'll read on here, verses 8 to 12. It says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So the music is played. The, uh, the instruments are going. Notice they include bagpipes in there. That's, I don't know if they're playing Scotland the Brave or anything like that, but uh, the bagpipes are going. So verse 7 says that, that everyone bowed down to this golden image. But then these Chaldeans, these are kind of like counselor and magician guys who are in the king's court, they've observed that three young Hebrew men have refused to do so. And they, of course, are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're first introduced to them in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. They are part of the exiles who are brought back, just like Daniel. They're brought to serve the king in his court. In chapter 1, they're described as, as being youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So these are capable young guys, but they're capable young Hebrew guys. And so that means that, that they know and they worship Yahweh, the one true God. So in this situation, d despite being overwhelmingly in the minority, in a foreign land, when push comes to shove, they refuse to bow down. They're not going to give in because they know and remember the command of God. The command that was given, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is what God commanded there. Deuteronomy 5, 7 to 9 says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So they're not going to do it. Being bold sometimes means being in the minority. Being bold sometimes means being in the minority. It, it requires commitment. Think about your own life for a moment and, and your own situation. Where is it that you might sometimes find yourself in the minority as a follower of Christ? Maybe for, for some of you that's the workplace. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe you're the only member of your family who, who truly knows Christ. And maybe, in hearing me ask this, you're thinking and reflecting and, and realizing that maybe you don't have all that many places where you are in the minority as a follower of Christ. What place might it be? What place might God be calling you to go to so that you can be bold in your commitment to Christ? Being bold sometimes means being in the minority. The young men are committed to their God and they're taking their stand. This is not going to go over well. Nebuchadnezzar is not impressed. Let's read on here. Here's what happens next. 
verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So here's the confrontation. I think at this point in time, I'd probably be feeling the, the, the trembling adrenaline rush being brought before the king of Babylon. He's not impressed by their actions. And so he says to the young men, his ego is, is getting in the way. He doesn't want to let this one slide. So he says to them, here's the opportunity. Here's an opportunity to recant, as it were, to make things right in his eyes, to, to get a do-over here, to have a mulligan. He's not going to let this slide. But if they refuse, if they refuse to recant, then there's this fiery furnace waiting for them. And it's sort of ironic here that, that Nebuchadnezzar's pride, asking this question here in verse 15, really it serves as a tremendous platform for what takes place next. The king is, is almost unwittingly teeing up this, this remarkable moment. It really serves as the hinge for this entire chapter, and it provides us with a snapshot of an incredible bold move of the Bible. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verses 16 to 18 tell us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. Now, I, I have no idea how exactly this played out. Scripture doesn't tell us. I mean, we don't know if, if one of the three was kind of the spokesperson. Maybe like, okay, Shadrach, you're good with words. You talk to the king. I don't know if it was like that or if they kind of lined up three in a row and took turns saying this. We can't say for sure. And the passage, Scripture doesn't tell us if they spoke in loud voices or if they were speaking softly. We can't say if they were shaking and trembling as these words were said. But what we can say with certainty is that they said these words with confidence. The words are strong. And being bold is rooted in courage. It's rooted in courage. A God-given courage, of course. These young men, they, they seem to have just a, such an unwavering confidence in God. They're, they're allowed to speak with, with courage in this pivotal moment when brought before this powerful king. We have no need to answer you in this matter. We know full well that our God is more than capable of delivering us. We're talking about the one here who created the entire universe. He delivered an entire nation from bondage. He's performed miracle after miracle. So based on that, based on his, his track record and based on his character, getting three young guys out of a fiery furnace, that's no biggie. I, I still love verse 18, though. I love what it says. If not, even if God chooses not to save us in this particular moment, in this instant, he alone is still the one. He's the only one who's worthy to be praised. We're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to worship some golden image. 
Well, what a powerful, courageous stand here. Talk about a bold move. This is sort of this defiant mic drop moment in the face of the most powerful man in the universe. And not just that, it's happening on his big day when his image is going up and he's brought all the political poobahs of the entire empire. They're all brought together for this big ceremony. So needless to say, the king's ego once again flares up. He doesn't take it too well. Let's read on here. Verse 19, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 21, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. This, this isn't necessarily an overreaction on the king's part, the, simply kind of following through on the command that's given starting in verse 6. The herald announces this as the consequence for those who don't bow down. But the king's ego does not allow him to relent, even at the, even at the cost of losing three of his effective, young, capable servants in his court. It says that the expression on his face was changed towards them. So this, this is a death sentence. This is, this is actually the first time in Scripture where we see servants of God who are being executed for their beliefs. The heat is cranked up seven times more, it says. Not sure if this is an exact scientific fact or more just a figure of speech to, to say that the heat is increased considerably. It's actually increased so much so that, that the soldiers, some of the mighty men of the king, who are taking the three men to the entrance of the furnace, they're killed. Think about that for a moment. They're killed as they get close to the heat of the flames. I mean, I, I know I can't even necessarily handle it sometimes when I'm out on my back deck and I've got to, like, put the steak spice on the meat towards the end and I'm kind of reaching over the grill a little bit. I'm like, oh, that's hot, you know? So I can't even imagine how hot this fire is. Some hot flames we're talking about here. So into the furnace fall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at what happens next here. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So this is a miracle that is taking place here. No other way to say it. These three young men, they are in the furnace and they appear to be untouched by these flames. They're just kind of having a little heat walk, walking in the midst of the fire, seemingly immune to the intensity of the fire, the one that had just killed other people moments ago. And not only that, but they are joined by a fourth man, one who Nebuchadnezzar describes as one like a son of the gods. We can't, we can't say for certain who this fourth person was. Uh, biblical scholars debate this a little bit. I know uh, Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, suggests that this is actually a Christophany. Uh, that is to say, it, it's, it's an example of the pre-incarnate Christ, that it's Jesus uh, among his people. Others think that, that this fourth person was just simply an angel, sent by God to protect his people. 
um, to show and further demonstrate the might and the power of the one true God. We, we can't say for sure. But this bold move has led to a brilliant miracle. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. So out they come, they just walk out, surviving a living testimony to the only one worthy of worship. So all the political bigwigs are here, remember. And they're gathering around and inspecting these three men. They're, they're looking them over. And it's interesting, like they had like their cloaks and tunics, like it's, it's, I don't know if that's a little bit of like preheating, like to kind of warm them up before they go in the fire. But they had all this stuff on them. But the only thing that gets burnt in the furnace is the things that, that men tied them up with, the ropes that bound them. Everything else is fine. So we'll finish up the chapter here, reading the king's reaction, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Incredible testimony. Here you have the, the most powerful ruler in the world, the king of Babylon, and he is just simply, for lack of a better term, he's overcome by what has taken place. And it's interesting, he blesses God. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's interesting to note, if you read through the book of Daniel, uh, this is actually the second instance where, where Nebuchadnezzar seems to be very impressed by God. He, he seems to be cut to the heart by, by the working of God. And yet he still doesn't, doesn't seem to quite fully grasp it. I don't know if it's the ego, the pride in the way, but he doesn't seem to quite wholeheartedly give himself to God in worship. But he's at least taken notice here. How could he not? The grand spectacle of this day is no longer, in fact, for this massive monument to the king dedicated to the glory of man. But the headlines are instead about three young men who have boldly taken a stand and their faithful God who delivered them from certain death. Nebuchadnezzar gives his blessing and then he issues a decree and then he even chooses to, to promote these guys. Quite the turn of events. Being bold takes conviction. Being bold takes conviction. It involves a willingness to take risk. Sometimes tremendous risk. There's a cost to being bold. These three young men had, had nothing to gain, really, certainly from a worldly perspective. They had nothing to gain to obey God rather than men. You know, they could have just as easily kind of laid low, slipped in with the rest of the crowd as the bagpipes start playing, whatever the song was. They could have bowed down just like everyone else. But their conscience wouldn't allow them to do so. The word of God was written on their heart. They knew his command. So even in that moment where they're brought before the king and they testify to him, there was risk there. They knew that. They could have been killed instantly. And then they knew the fiery flames awaited for them. 
They were prepared to face death, but they stood up for what they knew to be true. Being bold takes conviction. I wonder today if, if there are places for you where, where you might have to take a stand for the gospel. Maybe it is in the workplace environment. Maybe, maybe there are some, some unethical things that are going on, things that you wish you could just sort of ignore and pretend they're not happening. Maybe you've been asked to cut corners in order to get ahead. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a very toxic environment, spiritually speaking. And so for you to, to bring up matters of faith, that would spell suicide for your career ambitions. Perhaps it's with family or friends where, where you're in the minority. And you try to bring Christ into the conversation, but, but you just seem to get shot down time and time again. And then instead, you, you find yourself getting caught up in conversations that, that just seem to have a negative influence on you, words that you hear weigh on you. And then you feel like a failure. You feel like you've let God down and you haven't done a good job of, of talking about him. You feel like you fear man more than you fear God. Have there been times where you've been embarrassed to speak up and, and speak truth? Have there been times where you're embarrassed to stand up for what you know is right? Whose authority has more effect on your daily life? Is it God or is it someone else? Maybe you're like me. I'm that people pleaser by nature. I want to be well liked. I want to avoid confrontation. So do you run from conflict if it means you're going to be put in a tough spot? See, on our own, we lack the commitment. In our own strength, our, our courage fails us. We're weak and, and left to ourselves, our conviction is lacking. We give in to fear and to apathy. But thanks be to God that he's given us hope. Jesus is the one, Jesus Christ is the one who strengthens us and enables us, empowers us by his spirit to be bold for him. Knowing and believing that he lives within us, that changes everything. That is a game changer that allows us to make those bold moves. Because were it not for Christ, we would be left to ourselves in our helpless, sinful state, left in our brokenness. But he's made it possible through his life, his death and resurrection, to be given hope, to be given the freedom and forgiveness of sins that we need that only come through him. Do you know the life-changing power of the gospel today? Whether it's your first time hearing it or your 15,000th time hearing it, do you know the power of the gospel? Can you see how Christ has changed you and is continuing to change you? Can you see the areas of your life where he's calling you right now to be bold? And I'm so thankful that we have a Savior who serves as an example for us in this. Because six, 600 years, give or take, after these events in Babylon, long after the Babylonian Empire crumbled, Jesus prophesied. He said, he told his disciples that they would one day have to give an account, that they would be brought before kings and rulers, that they would have to testify. But he said not to fear. Do not worry, because in those moments, the Spirit of God would empower them. It would be his words speaking through them. And certainly if you read through the first few chapters of the book of Acts, we see that's exactly what happened as, as God speaks through Peter, as God speaks through the apostles in powerful ways. And not only did he prophesy about this, but Christ lived this for us as well. Just an incredible example because just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus also stood before the rulers, the, the authorities of his time, and he testified to the kingdom of God. He didn't, he didn't back down. He didn't have fear of man. 
He gave up his very life. History records it was as an enemy of the state, but, but we know from an eternal perspective that he did so for the sake of redeeming us and bringing us the freedom and forgiveness of our sins, purchasing it for us. So we need not look only to just these three young Hebrew men, but to our Savior as well, to our King of Kings. We'll go back to these three men for a moment. It's interesting. It's interesting to consider their names. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not their true names. Those are their Babylonian names that were given to them upon their arrival in the king's palace. But historically, uh, Daniel chapter 1 tells us this, that, that their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. That's what the word means. And God certainly was gracious to them that day by sparing their lives when they sought to honor him. Mishael means who is what God is. I think that's incredible when you give, when you give thought to the question that Nebuchadnezzar asked back in verse 15. He sort of mockingly asked them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Mishael's name says, who is what God is. There is no one like the one true God. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. And he certainly brought help to them that day. Helping his servants to be bold, to not give in to the pressures of the environment around them, and certainly helping them through sure death in the flames. And I'm quite confident it's these three that, that the writer of Hebrews refers to in, in that great chapter about the heroes of the faith, Hero, Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 34 talks about those who quenched the power of fire. One of the themes of, of this entire book of Daniel is God is the one who has the ultimate authority. Uh, Daniel prophesies about different nations and empires and, and rulers who rise up, but the underlying theme is the authority of God. And this is just one snapshot that testifies to that as these three heroes take a stand. So for each of us, as, as we seek to take a stand, there might be some flames that we have to face. Uh, we might even get burnt in the process. There may not be that miraculous deliverance for us. There might not be this incredible turn of events where some decree is issued in our workplace protecting us. We might not get that promotion. So there might be some significant life-changing consequences for you to face. Will your resolve be similar to that of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Can you say with conviction like they did that, that even if God chooses not to deliver you from whatever particular circumstance you'll have to go through, whatever it is, that he alone is still worthy of worship? I trust that you can. I trust that you can as empowered by God's spirit. Just one last thing as we wrap up our time here together. Being bold can be done in community. Being bold can be done in community. You can be bold together. And just as much as, as this whole My Bold Move campaign suggests you know, different individual efforts and conversations, uh, I've certainly loved seeing this, and I trust that you've noticed that it, this as well, that, that a number of the videos that have come in, different submissions that have come in, have been done by, by families or, or groups. And that's been so neat to see. It, it can be scary to be bold on your own. So, so bring others along with you, whatever that might look like. Who knows? I mean, we don't know how these three young men would have fared if they were just one by themselves. Maybe they would have given in, I don't know. But I know their voice was probably louder and more confident because they were standing together. Their resolve was strengthened by being in it together. 
So be bold in community. Think about what that might look like, whether that's your family or you know, one of our small groups here, how you might reach the immediate community around you. Pray for opportunities, not just for yourself, but for others around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for opportunities so that, that we can certainly be bold and proclaim Christ, not only individually, but collectively. So we've read about this tremendous confrontation that, that took place thousands of years ago, and I think the application is still very real for each of us today as followers of Christ. It's no secret, our, our society and our culture continue to shift in such a way that, that we often find ourselves in the minority in a number of ways. So may we, may we follow that example that's laid out for us, certainly by these three heroes of the faith, and all that much more so by our Savior, so that, so that we might have the commitment and we might have the courage, and we might have the conviction to boldly testify to the one true God through our church family so that those around us will come to know who he truly is. Let's pray together. Father, again, we recognize that you are the one true God. Your word speaks for itself. You brought the most powerful ruler in the most powerful empire at that time to a place of awe. And Lord, you hold the nations in your hand. You, ca you cause kings and nations to rise and fall. No one is greater than you. And Lord, in, in hearing this story today, maybe we're reminded of our own fear of confrontation, our own limitations. Lord, on our own, we're weak. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each of us that we would have the courage to take a stand, that we would be committed to the truth of your word, that your law would be written on our hearts so that we would know what is right and stand up for what is true, that we would do so with conviction, even so to the point that even if it comes at great cost to us, we would be willing to do so so that you would be glorified. Father, I pray that we would continue to be sensitive to your spirit, that we would see opportunities around us to be bold in the workplace, in the neighborhood, at school, with, with family and friends. Lord, and that we would invite one another along in that journey to be on mission together, to be bold, to proclaim Christ together as your family. Father, help us to do that. We can't do it in our own strength, but we know you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, and you've given us one another. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.